Um, so I'm just going to uh, start with um, some remarks, which for me typically uh, over the summer begin with um, or derive from what began as a Facebook comment. <laughs> um, so I will throw some things out and then hopefully we can have a more substantive uh, conversation. <clears throat> in an article published in the New York Times yesterday, political scientist Melanie Price argued, quote, the most significant political shift in decades is happening, but it's not Trumpism or white nationalism or corruption uh, or even, or, or corruption on the right. It's in black politics. Price went on to enumerate the significant political victories of black Democrats, including Ayanna Presley from here in Massachusetts. Um, Andrew Gillum, who shocked the political establishment in Florida by becoming the first African-American to represent the Democratic Party in the race for governor. There was also Wesley Bell, an African-American on the city council in Ferguson, Missouri, who ousted Robert McCullough, the seven-term St. Louis County prosecutor who refused to prosecute Darren Wilson, the police officer that murdered Mike Brown Jr. There are other victories also in this wellspring of electoral support that seems to have pierced the idea that Trump or Trumpism is all-powerful. Price frames this electoral phenomenon as the rise of a new black left. But I do think it's important to distinguish between develop developments in electoral politics, even where they appear to align with the objectives of socialist or radical politics. I think that these political de developments that, in fact, are a much broader phenomenon than what is happening in black electoral politics alone, whether it is Bernie Sanders, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, or Andrew Gillum of Florida, these electoral victories are broad, mainstream expressions of a deeper radicalization happening in the United States. What does that mean? It means that a growing number of ordinary people in this country have grown tired of the status quo, whether it is stagnant wages and income and the escalating cost of living, be that housing, food, gas, whether it is the endless resources for the military, while the costs of health care become prohibitive and completely out of reach, whether it's the persistence of police terrorism in urban and suburban communities while this country is run by a cabal of white racist criminals. Political radicalization is produced when the gap between the rhetoric of what we are told this country is supposed to be violently clashes with the reality of what this country actually is. The evidence of radicalization is expressed in multiple ways. From the rebellions in Ferguson in 2014 and then Baltimore in 2015. It can also be expressed through the formation of organizations in the midst or the aftermath of those uprisings in the Black Lives Matter movement. It can be seen in the explosive growth of the Democratic Socialists of America who have now surpassed 50,000 members nationally. It can also be seen in the election of candidates whose political promises break from the status quo to genuinely reflect the desires of ordinary people. In 2016, 13 million people voted for an open socialist, Bernie Sanders. 
but it can also be seen in the election of lesser-known Democrats who either come out of activist backgrounds or who have been imbued with the demand for actual political change. There are a few things to say about these developments. These electoral developments should help put to bed the awful idea that Bernie Sanders' politics could not appeal to black voters. The subtext to the notion that Sanders had a, quote, race problem was the ignorant idea that black voters were too pragmatic or practical for Sanders' talk of health care for all, free college tuition, and living wage salaries. But we should also proceed with caution. There are those who will regard these political developments as proof of the maturation of the social movement Black Lives Matter. From protest to politics is how this is typically described. The movement had been chastised repeatedly for supposedly not having an agenda. The real problem was that much of the movement had objectives that were not in sync with the political status quo, including the abolition of police, prisons, and the massive redistribution of wealth and resources from the rich to the working class. This was the real problem with the movement for the Democratic Party and their liberal supporters. But we know, or we should know from history, that it is the black movement and insurgency that gives meaning to any concept of, quote, left black politics. That is to say that the movements of the 1960s created the conditions for the formation of the Congressional Black Caucus, which when it formed in 1971, described itself as the, quote, conscience of the Congress. But by 1986, would go on to co-sponsor Ronald Reagan's Anti-Drug Act, which declared the war on drugs. And that by 1994, would largely vo vote in support of Bill Clinton's racist crime bill. What happened to black politics? It was not just a case of, quote, selling out, but, the electoral, po but electoral politics is set up for constant negotiating and compromise, which predisposes it to conservatism. It is why the significant gains for black people, ordinary people, have always come in the midst of social movements. The historians and other chroniclers, chroniclers of the past focus on white men, the governing bodies, and institutions as central conduits through which change happens. But all of those entities have been activated by the action of what is happening on the streets and in organizing. When those movements were beaten, jailed, and co-opted into retreat in the 1970s, we witnessed the conservative turn in black politics over the course of the 1980s and 1990s. I write about this process in my book, From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. Quote, as the vibrancy of the black insurgency retreated into the past, less pressure was exerted on elect black elected officials. The retreat of the movement also signaled to black workers and the poor that black elected officials and whatever assistance they could offer would have to be enough because help was not coming from anywhere else. Both realizations over time had a conservatizing effect as black politics moved to the right in accord with, general, with the general conservative Paul overtaking mainstream American politics. The Democratic Party had opened itself up to blacks, women, and youth for fear that these constituencies would pull voters away from mainstream politics and in doing so, leech support from the party. 
in search of resources, support, and perhaps legitimacy in the face of a cloudy future for the black movement, activists entered the party believing they could use it for their own purposes. But instead of the left turning the party, many activists found themselves having to conform to Democratic Party objectives. In some cases, radicals and revolutionaries not only stayed in step with the narrow and conservative agenda of the Democratic Party, but jumped ship on liberalism altogether and defected to the right." Close quote. We cannot assume that the development of a left or progressive current within the Democratic Party is in the position to deliver significant political reforms outside of the scope of mass social pressure. This is what is potentially concerning about the way that many organizations that are connected to Black Lives Matter have pivoted to electoral politics. I certainly understand the pressures to do so in Trump's America, where neo-Confederates and other white nationalists are running on racism. I don't think that because one engages in electoral politics that they lose the capacity to protest or organize independently. But there will be tremendous pressure to give, quote, our elected officials time to get their programs together. There are many problems with this, but one of them is that it misses how it was the protests themselves were created the conditions and the pressure for elected officials to act in ways that were favorable to us in the first place. Without the continuation of pressure, the countervailing pressures of pragmatism and compromise creep back and become the guiding force in politics. We also have to consider the way that electoral projects constrain our ability to think beyond reforms and that which immediately is possible. Indeed, the framework of From Protest to Politics embodies the core of American liberal thought. The assumption that the existing governing bodies and institutions of the United States are capable of establishing equality and opportunity for black people. The entire 20th century is a refutation of that premise, but it remains seductive in the ways that revolutionary transformation of the United States seems impossible. But the best of the black radical tradition has always understood that black liberation the notion that black people can live free of physical, economic, and social coercion cannot be achieved within capitalism. Indeed, <laughs> indeed, capitalism was founded and perpetuated on the brutal subjugation of indigenous people, the enslavement of black people, and the violent expropriation of tens of millions of immigrants. You cannot have capitalism without racism, and you cannot have racism without capitalism. This is why, this is why black struggles have always been bound up with socialist and communist movements that have sought to subvert the political order of this country and abroad. But the day-to-day -day struggles in which many people are engaged must be connected to a much larger vision of what a different world could look like. Political scientist and radical Michael Dawson argues for what he refers to as pragmatic utopianism, 
that, quote, starts where we are but imagines where we want to be based on the utopian imaginings of a much different America, one we are told repeatedly was impossible to obtain combined with the hard-headed political realism that generated the strategies and tactics necessary to achieve their goals, close quote. And this, is this neoliberal, gentrified, overpriced, under-resourced society the best our species can create? The Black Women's Manifesto, which was published in the late 1960s, provided a very succinct idea of what the new world would look like. And I want to end with a quote uh, uh, from this manifesto with the idea that it is not enough for our side, not to assume that you're all on our side, um, <laughs> but it's not enough just to oppose everything. We are often clear about what it is that we are against and can be hazy in terms of what it is that we are for. So I will take my lead from the Black Women's Manifesto. Quote, the new world that we are struggling to create must destroy oppression of any type. The value of this new system will be determined by the status of those persons who are presently most oppressed, the low man on the totem pole. Unless women in any enslaved nation are completely liberated, the change cannot really be called a revolution. A people's revolution that engages the participation of every member of the community, including men and women, brings about a certain transformation in the participants as a result of this participation. Once you have caught a glimpse of freedom or tasted a bit of self-determination, you can't go back to old routines that were established under a different racist capitalist regime. Thank you. Can y'all hear me? Okay. Well, we can just discuss this discussion now. Uh, quite honestly, that was that was damn good. Um, um, since I have to speak, I guess, um, rather than just jumping to questions, I, I you see I put my notebook down because most of the pieces that I was thinking about covering. You were just going through a checklist, oh, that's done, that's done, that's done. Um, but just, I'm gonna try to just uh, honestly ad lib on, on a couple of different things. Uh, I think really focus on this question of harnessing our imagination and the importance of that, uh, which I think is underestimated and underutilized. Uh, and for good reason, I think for most of us, we've been living in, in a pretty stark and dire nightmare uh, and not necessarily knowing, you know, where your next meal is going to come from or whether you're going to be in some prison cell, uh, either in your home or in some state institution, can make it hard to dream, can make it hard to imagine. And the, the piece that I want to really highlight on a broader systemic level uh, is this notion, which I think sadly has become too true, that for far too many of us, it's easier 
to envision the end of the world than it is to envision the end of capitalism, right? And that has become like a standard norm uh, in a lot of our conversation uh, to where either we think that certain types of reforms are the best that we can do uh, or just stopping the hard edges of what presently exists uh, is what we must give, you know, not, if not all our immediate attention, all of our strategic focus to. And that is going to get us absolutely nowhere. Uh, I am one who believes that there has to be some guidepost as to where we want to go. Even if we are very clear, we are not going to be able to see it manifest in our own lives. Why? Uh, I would argue my own subjectivity and the subjectivity of this conversation gives you a root of that. So let me take you to a, to a point of what I mean by that. Imagine you a young person who was just captured and kidnapped and you've been put on the hull of a ship and being taken to some destination that you don't know where it's gonna happen to you or where you're going at the end of it. That's what our ancestors confronted with the transatlantic slave trade. And even though they didn't know where that final destination was, they always kept in some, some form of they, the back of their mind, I'm going to change the situation as soon as I can. That may have meant jumping off that boat and dealing with the sharks, which happened in a lot of cases. It may have meant fighting back uh, whenever you got the opportunity on that ship or when you landed someplace. It may have been, I'm gonna suffer through and try to plan through strategically so my children have it better. But there are many folks who face circumstances far more dire than I think most of us could presently imagine who were not limited in their imagination about what the future could hold, even if it didn't hold promise for them individually. And that is the type of resolve I think our movement is gonna to have to basically develop to deal with the issues that we got in hand. Um, you know, we are really facing uh, not just an existential you know, issue for humanity, but a deeper aspect of what's gonna to happen to complex life on this planet that humanity is ultimately responsible for. Not everybody equally, of course, uh, but the system that we, we inhabit is basically destroying life as we understand it, right? And it may not be presently visible every day in each and in every way, uh, but trust me, it's happening. And I think all of us have, are seeing that more and more as the days go by. And all of us have some responsibility to try to change that because there, we ain't going to Mars. It's not happening. Just be clear about that, or at least you're not going, right? <laughs> be clear about that. Uh, you're not going. You ain't got no tickets or no invitation. Um, so which means you're gonna have to deal with the issues right here on the planet, and we got to deal with them together. So um, we could either let the folks who believe they got some solution which is gonna take them to the moon or Mars, continue to decide how, what the outcome is going to be. Or we could develop the social movements that are necessary to seize power from those folks and then change the course of the future. And that's a simple and direct way I think we have to figure out now what the strategies and tactics in between that point, uh, we're gonna have to figure out and innovate together. 
But I think some of the basic choices are clear, but it, it calls upon us, I think, to dig deep in our imaginations to find our willpower to be able to confront the system in despite of the dire consequences that we may experience. And I try to bring up that issue of you know, the, the, the slave ship in particular because it's not like that reality has stopped for many millions of people on this planet. You know, there are more folks by many estimations, there are more folks in some form of servitude on the planet right now than it was 200 years ago, 150 years ago. And there are more people on the move because of climate change or because of wars or because of instability uh, right now than there probably has ever been in at least recorded history. And we need to let that sink in. Now, I am one. Uh, I really like the time that we live in here. Uh, I'm really enjoying Trump to a certain extent. No, seriously, seriously. Um, because it is just exposing a lot of the, the facade of how the empire was managed and who it served. It's just making it plain. It's just making it bare. And I think it's incumbent to, upon us, those of us who really believe in radical change, to not fall into the trap of let's just go back to the good old days when, when they can manage empire and then you find your place in the management, right? We can't allow them to go back to that kind of status quo. And you see the urgent desperation of trying to return to that and how they tried to totally rehabilitate this murderer uh, who died a couple of weeks, what was it, a week ago? McCain, y'all know what I'm talking about. Um, they tried to totally rehabilitate this man's image. Now that served a strategic purpose of saying, look, there's a bipartisan way in which we have been managing the global system at least since World War II and we want to return to that. Is that your game? I, I, I ain't never managed no empire, nor have I ever wanted to. Right, so I'm not falling into a trap, and I would hope you don't. If you're saying, let's just go back to the status quo, let's go back to the good old days of George W. Bush or, or, or Obama. For many of us, there was never any good days. I ain't never recalled a good day as long as I've been alive, in regards to you know uh, uh, being a black man in the United States of America. So holding that position, understanding that, is to try at every step to not be confused by the strategies and tactics of those who confine the world in, in which I live in, and separating their game from what my aims and interests are, and understanding that there's, there's sometimes there's some small you know, tactical overlap, but I really don't have nothing at all in alignment with the system of capitalism, with the system of patriarchy, with the system you know, of extraction and exploitation, and not try to be confused by falling to somebody else's game time and time again to just find some way of like compromising with it or finding some way to grease the wheels. And if there's anything, um, I think to, to really walk away from connected to this issue of the imagination is also memory. Memory is very important. Uh, and to invoke one of the pieces from which you had mentioned earlier, I think it's very critical for us to understand that neoliberalism isn't just a set of like economic policies. That's a political project. And a large part of that project is erasing history. It has to erase history because it has to erase social bonds in order for it to work. 
And in order for the system to keep perpetuating itself, to be able to, to, to extract more and more from us to keep the system going. Because it's running out, it's running out of its limits. It's running out of areas to grow and to expand and penetrate in. And so the inward way of connecting, you know, uh, every household having to have 10 TVs and five cell phones uh, uh, is a way of trying to extract something uh, from us by breaking us down into more and more individuated atoms and even seeing ourselves as, as you know, having split personalities in order to make the system work. And we can't fall into that particular trap. So having memory is the key, I think, to, to really digging into your imagination, which to me goes back to the beginning of the subjectivity that we're talking about. You know, there was no, to a certain extent, I would argue, there was no black until that, those first ships started leaving the shores of Africa. Right, we had a different relationship to our own humanity than being prey to somebody else's systemic voyage of extracting profit. Black becomes a subject of, of a media trying to break free of that exploitation. That's what it is, right? Opposition to exploitation is a fundamental piece of what it means to be black. I would argue, we can debate that uh, uh, and would love to debate that. Uh, and I think we have to carry that particular piece forward, not just for those of us who are African descent, but I think for the broader vision of humanity. What can be drawn from this past 500 years of us as a particular people going through this turmoil? What can be generalized from that that speaks to the condition that folks who may be forced to travel from, you know, uh, um, Myanmar or forced to travel from uh, Colombia or El Salvador? What do we have in common? You know, what can we share? How do we find humanity in each other based upon our experiences? If I went through that form of exploitation, I don't want somebody else to have to go through that. So what can I lend? What can I share? What can I do that connects to them not only as a human, as a human being, but that deals with having them understand the systemic issues that we have faced if they're coming here? What are the systemic things you need to understand about this empire before you, 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 you get here and fall into the tricks of the divide and conquer? Right, which has been the fundamental basis by which almost everybody who comes to this country have to relate to black people, right? Uh, and that's a big piece that we're gonna have to deal with. Um, so I think I'm gonna end, I mean, there's a lot to say. I, uh, a critical piece, I guess, just to reflect on our experience relative to the subject around the imagination. We wouldn't be doing what we're doing in Jackson without having a keen understanding of our own people's history a keen understanding of uh, the radical imagination, what our ancestors had envisioned, and then also trying to develop a keen understanding of where the past efforts of social transformation have failed. And not to rest in the failure, but to, to really try to take strength from that, knowing human limitations, but also trying to put that in a situation that under those space, times, and conditions, weren't, what were they not able to overcome, so at least it provides a mirror for us in our space, time, and conditions, I can at least try to avoid that mistake and make some new ones. I'm all for making new mistakes. If I'm a, I know I'm gonna make some, but I hope that they're new mistakes and not old mistakes, right? That is the opportunity I'm looking to you know, impart and to share uh, because we've tried to ground ourselves in understanding our history and use that to, to enrich our imagination towards going forward. But without a clear imagination uh, uh, on our part, you would not be having a conversation of how you're gonna take Mississippi, which is one of the poorest places in this country, and then talk about we're gonna you know, try to institute some program of socialist transformation. 
most rational people would think you were out your damn mind to even make a suggestion like that. But we're here to tell you the conditions enable us, and, and I think in our view, to say, no, this is actually fertile ground for this type of transformation for these exact reasons, right? So it's a, it's a, it's a strategic pivot of trying to figure out in the midst, and this draws back from, you know, uh, trying to draw that, that imagination, what would my ancestors do? You know, they talk about what would Jesus do? What would my ancestors do, <laughs> right? What would my ancestors do? And try to remember, all right, when they was working in that field and the sun was hot and they didn't know where the next meal was coming from, they made it to another day some way, somehow. And how do I know this? Because I'm here. So I know it's possible. Right? And that gives me and I think us the collective strength through all the difficulties, through all the irritations we put each other through to try to continue to find a way. And that's what I want to encourage all us all to do and why I think this imagination is so important. Can y'all hear me okay? Alrighty. Uh, well, friends, I, I bring greetings from the South. And uh, in the spirit of how we do what we do in the South, one must start off with a song, right? And so, and that also helps me to get over my nervousness a little bit, <laughs> believe it or not. So uh, go ahead and clap with me or whatever feel, feel most compelled to do. But this song stays on my heart and it's been on my heart for some years now. It's kind of like my, what plays in the back of my mind when I don't feel like moving or feel like going or feel like working or getting up out of bed. I'm on my way to freedom land. I'm on my way to freedom land. I'm on my way to freedom land. I'm on my way, oh Lord, to freedom land. Slow down a little bit. It's an uphill journey, but I'm on my way. It's an uphill journey, but I'm on my way. It's an uphill journey, but I'm on my way. I'm on my way, oh Lord, to freedom land. We'll stop there, we'll stop there. So again, I just want to, one, first of all, thank you to everybody who had a hand in getting us here. From the uh, amazing person who picked us up from the airport, the homie who checked us in at the hotel and told me where I could smoke. <laughs> Not and to everybody, uh, and to everybody um, who thought enough of myself and to song. Uh, for, for me to be here and rep, not only represent myself, but also my political home, Southerners on New Ground. So thank you so much for having, having me here. And so I'll start off by talking about who Song is, because uh, Song is my political home and has been so since 2009. And Song is a Southern regional membership-based grassroots organization uh, organizing and, and bringing forward the leadership of queer and trans Southerners uh, to do justice work, to take our rightful place in this uh, fight for social justice and social change. 
and the song has been doing it for 25 years old, 25 years old this year. And uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And song started um, with the premise and started back in uh, 1993 uh, during a time where NAFTA was uh, sh uh, shifting the way in which um, folks were employed, the way in which product was being moved across borders. And uh, one of our founders, Map Segrest, had a conversation and did a keynote at, a, at the uh, National Gay and Lesbian Task Force uh, Convention, what have you, called uh, Creating Change. And, uh, and I would, and I would uh, argue and say that I believe she got booed and people actually showed dissent when she spoke about NAFTA and when she spoke about uh, why it was important for uh, the LGBTQ community to take up issues of race and economic justice. Many said, that ain't got nothing to do with us. We are we trying to get this gay marriage. But what our founders knew then, <laughs> You know, what our founders knew then based on their lived experience of what it meant to be Southern, what it meant to be queer, what it meant to be dykes and lesbians living in the South at the intersections of race, class, and gender, that we could no longer sit in spaces where folks just said, just bring that one part of yourself when all systems of oppression was working, um, working through and on our bodies and on our lives. And so from there, uh, an organization was started called Southerners on New Ground and um, rooted in the politics of black queer feminism. And now that language at the time was not, we have that language now. We talk about it in terms of the intersectional approach and intersectional analysis and intersectionality and all these fun things. But that language wasn't, uh, wasn't there yet. And we talked about bringing your whole selves to the work. That wasn't nobody gonna make us bring you know, only one part of ourselves without bringing the whole scroll. We're gonna bring our whole selves, whether you like it or not. So if we're gonna talk about what it means to be queer, we're gonna have to talk about what it means to be black, what it means to be Southern and queer and all the, you know, all the things. And so I just wanna um, just lay that out for you because song, again, is my political home. Somebody found my uh, scrappy ass in a bar one night in 2009, where most good things happened, a woman uh, that I was being a wing, I was actually being a wingman for my homie who thought she was cute and was like, yo, go talk to her. And I was like, I got you. And, um, and I asked her what she did for work. And she said, oh, I'm trying to stop the shackling of black women while giving birth. And she almost, almost had me drop my drink, you know, because I was floored. One, that this thing was happening, but then two, that she actually was doing something about it. And I think for song, it's not just always, it hasn't just been about the uh, politic, but it's always been about the practice. And what are we doing about it? What are we doing about it? And what do we see on the other side of it? And so she brought me into song, was like, yo, join this organization. And I was telling uh, Mr. Young earlier, I said, you know, when I begin to engage in uh, social change work and, and join song, I would sit in meetings and would shake my head and like, what is these motherfuckers talking about? <laughs> what is this language people are talking about? You know, I'd never, um, I didn't grow up in a politicized family. I got politicized when I moved south about 11 years ago. And I was floored by the analysis around patriarchy and white supremacy and capitalism and all the things. But one of the things that I did know, even if I didn't know all the language, I knew that that was gospel. And I knew the charge that they were putting out and the work that they were uh, inviting me to was gospel. And I was like, I got to get me some of that. And so I also want to say that part of um, being a part of song and being a part of movement, 
I think we have been grappling with for the last few years um, and some of the challenges of what it means to be a part of an organization who not only just wants to, we don't organize from a place of uh, just anger. Of course we're angry, duh, you know. <laughs> Obviously we mad about a lot of things. However, when we talk about what it means to reimagine, uh, re reawaken the black radical imagination, it has to come from a place of love and desire. And that is what we bring to the work, is organizing from a place of love, desire, and longing, which is tapped into, as Audre Lorde talks about, in terms of the erotica. And so when we talk sexual liberation is a part of the mission, y'all, just FYI. Everybody get you some sexual liberation. That's part of it, right? Um, because we know that we can't just create a world, as the comrades have stated, for, uh, we can't just create a world based off of what we're up against, but also what it is that we want and what we want on the other side of it. You know what I mean? And so, again, I'm grateful to be here and also to think about what are the challenges in terms of building and, and being a part of movements that we can invite that longing and desire uh, into the spaces that we create. I'm not talking sex parties, nasties. I'm talking about, <laughs> get your mind right. I'm talking about how do we actually build, how do we build strategies? How do we build and think about the tactics we use? How do we think about art and culture and those expressions of those things in the nature of our work? To, to actually make visible those things in which we see in our dreams, those things that you know, we talk about late at night on, uh, on porches, you know, that we're like, how in the world are we gonna think about bailing out a bunch of folk, you know what I mean, at mass? How in the world are we gonna do this? But I think that's the, the blessing of being a part of a political home that says, again, we're gonna or organize from a place of vision and a place of, and a place of possibility and experimentation. We got nothing to lose, right? And so, I want to uh, let me dig a little bit deeper into um, the uh, the bailout the bailout work because I think uh, over the last two years that's been um, really really uh, uh, impactful to the work that we've done inside of Song. We've done a many of things over the years, but I would say that um, the work of bailout. And I'll tell you a little bit again when I reference the porch. I'm serious about that. Me and a comrade was sitting enjoying uh, some conversation and libations, and we uh, grappled with, you know, we had been, uh, you know, we've seen folks go to jail for years, uh, post-2014, and I will even say 2013, whatever. We saw our people going to jail, taking strategic um, arrest, and we were like, yo, you know, this movement, we spent a lot of good money getting folk out, and we, and we needed to do that. And we said, but what about the people? that did not plan for the state to interrupt their life? What about the people who every day walk down the street, get profiled, get pulled over, you know, and are thrown into cages? And they didn't have time to prepare. They, there was no jail support plan in place. How do, we, how, do we, how do we press on that button in a real way? And so, and, and many of us had been through of the bell system for various reasons, some political, some personal. We could talk about that later. Um, but I think one of the things that this work of bailing out black mothers, it has called us to be sanctuary for each other. In a time where uh, we've seen this country and this president and other administrations, Obama being the chief de uh, deporter, 
um, has, has literally snatched folks out their homes and, and physical churches and said, hey, come post up. We're like, we have to do more. It's more to it than that. And we have to be willing to be more to each other than that. One of our comrades uh, often says, movement isn't just asking for more of us. It needs more from us. You feel me? And so we are called to be sanctuary for, for each other. Our uh, very survival and the survival of our future generations depends on our willingness to take collective risk, put in collective work, and reap the, and reap the collective rewards. Bailing out black people is not a direct service, y'all. It is an invitation into something bigger than ourselves. We are out to change policy, hearts and minds, deepen our relationships with our communities and alignments across sectors, take care of each other's babies, speak truth to power, build new systems and institutions to take care of each other. This uh, practice and this call to end money bail and pretrial detention is critical, and we have to take uh, seriously uh, what it means to do meaningful and transformative change work toward abolition and liberation. And so the work that we're doing now in terms of ending a money bail and ending pretrial detention, it's rooted in a vision of abolition. And what I would say, I believe, is that that has always been the demand of our ancestors as black people. The, whether it's the abolition of chattel slavery, the abolition of Jim Crow, and here we sit, mass incarceration. And so when I think about the freedom dreams of previous generations, I feel like we are in the wheel of our ancestors who desire and longing has always been freedom and self-determination. And that is what we're calling for. And one of the, so I feel like I'm rambling a little bit. Let me slow it down, I get all excited, y'all. <laughs> Even though I'm just like mad nervous, but I like, I get to rattling. Um, but I think one of the challenges, again, that we're faced with is understanding where uh, uh, organizing and movement building um, where the political meets the spiritual in this work. And I, and I, I think one of the things that breaks my heart is when I, uh, when I hear young people, and younger than myself, younger people, <laughs> uh, and I would say those who weren't born between 79 and 82, because I was told that maybe 83 that we're a particular generation of folk. But when I hear young people who are, um, who are, who, who come to the work with such cynicism and despair, and it blows my mind. I think you the one should be bringing the joy. You the one should be bringing the, the fun and the newness and the excitement in the work. And so it stirs my spirit and it, and it makes me wonder, what do we do in order to restore the faith of our people in the work that we're doing together? Not in systems, obviously that's not where it's at, but we have to have it in each other to be able to do the work. And, I'll, um, and there's a, a, a formula that song for years have, um, have impressed into the hearts and minds of many of us. When we think about what is the, the, the alchemy and formula for social change, and it has uh, four parts. One is identity, and not just like this, like, uh, my identity as a black lesbian queer, all of that, yeah, yeah, yeah. But your identity in terms of Winella Baker and others, and you go to the South Folk and ask you, who your people? Mm -hmm. Who your people? That's important. Who are you connected to? Who are the communities you feel a part of? Who is your ancestral lineage? Who are the people that you call upon when things get heavy? Who are the folk that you call upon when you want to celebrate 
And that is important in terms of social change. You have to know who you are. We always say that song, isolation is what kills our people. It is the isolation of our people that is really doing the murdering in our communities, right? And so we have identity, but we also have to have vision. And I'm a backslider, y'all. I think I've said it in my bio. Used to be in church, ain't no mo, ain't trying to go back. However, I do know a little bit about the word. And one of the things that it says is that uh, without a vision, the people perish. We have to know where we're going. And, I, and, and it amazes me to think about our ancestors who made that, I, I believe I read somewhere that it took about two months or so for Harriet, and you could probably, you know this, I know you know, scholar, about two months, about two months for, uh, for Harriet to make that trip from south to the north, right? And the only vision that she had was freedom, liberation, land of milk and honey, who knows? Streets paved with gold, who knows? But that she had something that was a, a broader vision that was beyond the dogs, that was beyond uh, the, the, the men on, on horses and slave catchers. It was something broader and bigger. And we need a vision. And I think in absence of it, what do we have to pass down to our young people who step into this work? And many of them think that movement just started when they showed up, which is weird. Like, where you been? Uh, but they have to understand that there's always been a vision in place. And, and our work and duty in every generation is to advance that vision and to create and see further out and to see something different. The third one is politics. Politics is our consciousness. Those values, those politics, those, um, the, 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 uh, the consciousness of, of, of what we're trying to do. The, uh, I always get this one here, I always like, how do I explain the politics part? But how we understand power, where, how are we trying to shift power? What are the values when we think about how, uh, the ways in which you want to relate to power? And oftentimes, the politics part and the, uh, the vision part is where many people get stuck. We could talk all day about my politics, I'm abolitionist, I'm da 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 da. But this last part is where people get a little hung up. And that's the work. The fourth part is the work, y'all. We have to put our hands on the plow. There is no getting around it. We can theorize and talk all day, but absence of collective work, collective work, that is where the magic, that's where the magic happens, right? Because we're able to bring all of what we have to bear. That is where we bring, you know, our scrappiness, you know what I mean? We bring our skills, and we also bring our offering to movement. And not that you have to come with everything figured out, not that you have to come perfect, but you have to come and you have to bring something. Sometimes, oftentimes we talk about you have to bring it, your time, your tithe, or your talent, but you must bring something to the collective work of getting free. And so don't y'all forget those four things, identity, vision, politics, and work. And so I will uh, end with this. And you know, as I, I kind of stated earlier when I first started, that um, you know, oftentimes this work is heavy, and I'm not gonna pretend and stand here and like, hey, social, you know, the social justice work is amazing. Fighting for liberation is awesome. It can be. It should be. We're responsible for creating the cultures in which we organize to do that. You know, again, we have to have desire and longing. We have to bring fun and excitement. You know, some people think we're a little wild in the way in which we approach this work, but it's critical if you plan on doing it for the long term. But when those moments get hard, and uh, I, will, I will end by saying that uh, the ancestors laid this on my heart. 
uh, I guess a few years ago, and this is what keeps me grounded because uh, Mama Ruby says uh, we must, and Mama Ruby sells former SNCC, she's an amazing Googler. Um, she often says we have to have insight, we have to have foresight, insight, and hindsight in order to understand where we're going. And this, um, this mandate, if you will, is what keeps me grounded and, and reminds me that, um, that this is beyond all of us. And so the mandate for black people in this time is to avenge the suffering of our ancestors, to earn the respect of future generations, and be willing to be transformed in the service of the work. This is our mandate, friends. And I'm going to say it one more time. The mandate for black people in this time is to avenge the suffering of our ancestors, to earn the respect of future generations, and be willing, and be willing to be transformed in the service of the work. There is no way you can be engaged in social change work, and it does not change you. You cannot step into this work and not come out more fierce, more bold, more proud, more loving, and more humble. You feel me? And we can extrapolate on the other parts of that, but I'll leave that right there for you. Thank you so much for your time. So we've got uh, some time to um, pick up on some of the threads that were <laughs> that were laid down, um, and I've got a couple um, I've got a couple questions that I want to ask, um, and then I also want to make sure that we have time for uh, uh, question and answer with the audience. Um, but um, being as this is a uh, a lecture series that is um, primarily kind of geared towards questions of, of history, right? And as, as you all pointed, uh, pointed out, questions of memory, questions of imagination. Um, I did want to ask a somewhat uh, pro forma question uh, that has to do with um, where you all draw inspiration. And at different points, you all spoke to, each one of you spoke to kind of, um, uh, kind of past examples or moments um, that sort of animates some of the work that you all do. But um, I just wanted to get a sense uh, of whether or not there were particular um, historical moments or movements uh, that you all have drawn inspiration from or uh, that have been important for you all to kind of keep in your memory. And uh, I, I say that in part because um, the, uh, the, the theme of this particular panel was inspired in part by Robin D.G. Kelly's book, Freedom Dreams. Um, and one of the things that I love about the book is that he talks about the ways in which social movements don't just um, hopefully create change, but they also create new ways of knowing, new ways of understanding the world. And um, in part, what are, what are movements that you all look to for inspiration, um, whether it's in a practical sense because of the work that they do, or it's, it's, in a, it's more in the realm of ideas and imagination in terms of the um, the vision of a particular kind of world that those movements have left us with. 
I, I can start. Um, the first thing I would <coughs> to, since we're in the academic environment, um, I would encourage. But the school year just started, so you don't have to go too heavy on that. If you want to. <laughs> I would encourage everybody here to pick up a book called The Black Jacobins by CLR James. Um, and even beyond that book, uh, the, the movement that gives me not just the most inspiration, but I think the most clarity is the Haitian Revolution. And there's a particular, um, there's a particular piece of that that I think that we are still living in the shadow of, and I think almost every social revolution since has been living in the shadow of on the global dynamic. And that is, um, he was the phrase as a debate, the debate that happened between Toussaint and Dessalines around how to deal with um, the rest of the world. Uh, and it wasn't just a question of how we're gonna deal with Napoleon and the French coming back. It was a deeper question that what type of society we trying to build and what type of society is actually possible and capable given our relations within the world. And there was a debate there that was never finished and there's a debate that has happened in almost every single social revolution ever since then that touches on this. In, in the Russian Revolution, it, it sometimes appeared as a distinction between Trotsky and uh, uh, Stalin around socialism in one country versus permanent revolution. And it manifests itself in different ways, but it's that same fundamental question. What can we actually do in the here and now? And what in the here and now will enable us to get to where we ultimately want to go? And our movements trip up time and time again on that question. The distinction between what we feel we can do and the possibility of the now, as opposed to what is our ultimate vision of where we want to go. And how those roads, at, at oftentimes in our histories, diverge and sometimes diverge in very nasty, ugly, divisive ways. And it's something that we have to figure out. Uh, and I'm arguing, uh, uh, you know, part of the thing that we, we've been, in our movements we often push on, and I even touched on earlier that, you know, I'm, I'm for a vision I may not be able to, to realize, and I'm, I'm, you know, to experience in my lifetime, and I'm comfortable with that. Uh, but the thing that I am very much concerned about, and this is where, where having ch kids has transformed me, um, time is compressed in a way that I don't know, uh, other uh, generations have had to deal with. That, that doesn't mean that they haven't felt, but have to deal with. Because when we start looking at the fact that, you know, just to throw some things at you to put on your mind, that uh, the current uh, rate of just, I'll take one example, soil. How many of y'all think about soil? Raise your hand. Oh, I'm surprised, that's, that's a good sign. That's a real good sign. <laughs> Okay, that's a good, I don't care where I am, that's a good sign. <laughs> um, but just to throw that out, you know, because our present practices means that we're going to run out of good soil, you know, in about 25 to 30 years, which means there won't be no food. And so for me, I'm looking at, okay, I may be gone, 
But my kids will be here. Their kids will be here, hopefully. And what are we leaving for them in very practical, concrete ways? Right, and so there's a time compression that I think that we really got to deal with, which says that, hey, we got to figure some stuff out in a deep, profound way very quickly, and we have to approach it with a level of intensity and seriousness that I think all the other generations combined uh, you know, would be able to muster, and we're gonna have to, to get there. But just to answer your question and to throw that out, uh, I, I really do seriously encourage folks to check out that particular history and those particular set of dynamics. It was roughly a period from about 1801 to 1804 where this debate was very, very intense and I think it, we would all do well to go back and study that. The Black Jacobins by C.L.R. James. Um, I'll just say, because it's hard to think about a single um, period, incident. Uh, it's like, what's your favorite song? <laughs> what's, what's your favorite book? But another uh, a book that um, was written around the same time and of a, a contemporary CLR James, Black Reconstruction um, by uh, W.B. Du Bois that uh, talks about the, the process of the failed project of reconstruction in the aftermath of the Civil War um, in the United States. Uh, and in doing so, I think really uncovers the, um, the dynamic of race and how race functions, um, it, at least as it pertains to, uh, in, in, a, in a black and white society, uh, which obviously is not fully reflective of the world that we live in today, but uh, uncovers the underlying dynamic of race in American um, society in a way that I think is, is critical um, to understanding the, even the contemporary moment that, that we live in. And so um, to that extent, I've, I'm interested mostly in uh, I'm a, I write about social movements, um, I write about uh, black politics, um, but I think that there's a lot to be learned um, about understanding the history of black social movements and black struggles um, in the United States. In a uh, article that um, uh, Martin Luther King wrote um, in the year before he was killed that was published um, the, in the year after his assassination. So he wrote it in 1960, in 1967, and then it was published in 1969. Um, he talks about the, um, the way that uh, the black movement exposes the interrelated flaws um, of American society, and he names them as uh, racism, militarism, uh, commercialism, um, and poverty. And I think that in a country that is uh, highly vested in uh, ideological distortions um, about its aims and objectives, uh, mostly uh, framed around the concept of American exceptionalism, that the U.S. Uh, is the most democratic, the most just, and the most free society uh, in the world, that there is no country like the United States meant 
in a positive sense um, that the black struggle is so important because it exposes the lie of this mythology um, at the heart of uh, American society, that there is no way to sanitize uh, the history of black people um, in this country. And that is why, in some sense, that even though black people are a minority population um, in the US, that the federal government has always had an extreme and overreaction um, to black political protest. Uh, and so part of that is understanding what um, black movements reveal uh, about U.S. society. And we can see the reverberations of that, um, not just in perhaps you know, the, the reaction of uh, the uh, local state, but also the federal state uh, to Black Lives Matter and the, the militarized uh, response to unarmed protesters in the streets of Ferguson um, in Baltimore. But when we think about the black liberation movements of the 1960s and the ways in which uh, black activists from that period continue to be hectored and hounded by the federal government. You think of someone like Asada Shakur, who is 72 or 73 years old, has been living in exile for decades, and is still atop the FBI's most wanted list. Um, the, those sorts of reactions are not because there isn't any expectation that Asada Shakur poses any particular harm um, to the United States, but it is about uh, smashing a legacy of black resistance and black rebellion in a country that still continues to rely on the oppression and exploitation uh, of black people as a central feature of its functioning. Um, and so in that sense, there is quite a lot to be learned um, from studying uh, the, the, the politics, the culture, the history uh, of black people and, and, and black social movements as a way of not only understanding those things, but also understanding what it says about the United States itself. Um, I, I want to ask, I want to make sure we have time for question and answer, um, but I want to uh, pick up on um, one of the themes that kind of ran through um, you all's um, uh, uh, you all's presentations, um, and I think that there's one uh, an amazing amount of work that we still have to learn from from say uh, the work that Song has been doing in terms of the um, Black Mamas bailout. Um, in terms of saying, here's, a, here's an aspect of the criminal justice system that we can directly deal with, right? That we can kind of expose aspects of it. And frankly, has been at the leading edge of some of the criminal justice work that other organizations around the country have just recently kind of picked up on, right? Um, and in a similar sense, the, the sort of um, kind of innovative practical work that's been happening through Cooperation Jackson in terms of saying, how do you build um, in a sustainable way how do you build in a way that's um, uh, dealing with the question of economic democracy, right? And uh, the sort of stark kind of racial oppression that you find in Mississippi, how do you take those on um, all at the same time? And um, so you have that kind of work, and then uh, particularly in this moment now, um, there seems to be a kind of particular gravity, a particular kind of pull um, when it comes to uh, the midterm elections in, in, at, in November, right? 
um, and the 2020 elections that are going to be coming around the bend, and the ways in which um, so much of the visionary work that we might try to do uh, can get pulled in towards electoral politics, not just in a sort of protest to politics kind of way, as you talked about, Kianga, but in the sense that um, uh, you know, this is the, the sort of main game in town, and um, it, it has to be contended with in one way or another. And I want to, um, aside from, we can have a kind of big picture conversation about imagining a new world, but I think we also, um, you know, uh, our, our imaginations in some ways uh, are lacking just in terms of how we can think about how to deal with the, the contradictions of American democracy in a way that's not simply like, okay, I'm gonna sort of throw my hands up in the air and go work on my little like co-op farm around the corner or I'm gonna uh, just go and vote for the, whoever the Democratic candidate is or what have you. And I'm curious to know uh, what you all think are some of the, the lessons to be learned in terms of how, to, um, how um, visions of uh, black freedom have, um, might give us a way of thinking outside of the box when it comes to dealing with the democratic um, uh, institutions that we find ourselves contending with in this country, and particularly at this moment in time. Uh, well, there's an example I'll give, um, which I think helps, uh, at least on our, on our end, think about how do we take moments like this and not like, you know, water down our agendas water down our radical approaches to actually move the needle in some way um, and be able to, yeah, make an opportunity out of um, what can be oftentimes very demoralizing and a uh, uh, worst of the two evils type situation. And I'm inspired by um, uh, an organization that we build deeply with called Ajiharte that's based out of um, Puerto Rico. Shout out, shout out to them, they are so dope. They uh, do really dope um, agitational art. And I believe some years ago, uh, they were also in a situation, an election was happening, and they ran a fake candidate. They created a large scale puppet. This cat would do like, you know, um, uh, press interviews and have rallies. And I believe the translation of his name was, no one is worthy. And he would talk about like what he ain't gonna do, because they knew that nobody that got in office was actually gonna do what they said it was gonna do. And so being able to bring satire and fun and also imagination and, and change the, the, the conversation, real talk, I think gives us something to think about. So we were uh, inspired by that. And um, some of our members um, last year during the Atlanta election, you know, we saw ourselves you know, people are like, oh, Atlanta's gonna have a mayor named Keisha and all these things, whatever. And there was a huge conversation around Mary Norwood, who we knew was like a, a, a Republican in disguise. And folks was like, if she does get in office, it's not just that she gets in office, but the Trojan horse and everything that comes with her, right? And so some of our members was super stoked and uh, we <laughs> we'd learned to create a large scale puppet head um, that we turned into Trump 
And so one of the members wore the Trump head, another member dressed like Mary Norwood, and they went and canvassed in the white neighborhoods and knocked doors like that. And it was hilarious, and it created some really interesting dialogue. And one of the things that we were all, we've always been committed uh, to as we we're moving electoral experiments, as we call it, in uh, Birmingham and Nashville right now, is not necessarily, you know, we ain't going for no particular candidate, but our goal is to be able to electoralize the issues, to, to, to make the issues that we're bringing forth a, a, a primary conversation in these local races. And so that's when we get on the doors and we like, yo, you mad about this? You mad about bail? You mad about failure to appear warrants? Like, this is what you can do. Join organizing, get involved, and register to vote, and listen to what these candidates are saying. Here's a report card on who stands where. And so those are some of the ways in which we engage in something that can oftentimes be very, you know, demoralizing. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, I... You may know, but I, I have a very probably unpopular view with many folks in that regard, um, in, to, in regards to your question. Um, let me see, what's, how, what's best to frame this? Um, it's kind of why we brought you here, because <laughs> your unpopular opinion. <laughs> well, look, well, um, let me phrase it this way. Um, we are we, <laughs> we are grossly we are grossly underprepared uh, for what is here and what is coming, and we have to start, in my view, with that premise as an organizing premise. That's a call to get your shit together and get organized, and get organized on several different levels. I'm not just talking about the level of door knocking and running a campaign and having an agenda. Uh, it has uh, long been my position, even before Trump got into office, because of the systemic nature of where the system itself is at right now, that we are basically in a kind of a, a pre-cannibalistic phase within this country, right? Like, it's coming. And so the, the politics in the game now is to forestall the level of destruction that we have witnessed and we are witnessing now in Yemen, that we have seen in Syria, we've seen in Libya, we've seen in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, and I can go on and on. The whole narrative around the exceptionalism, see, it, this level of wanton destruction of human life has been going on since World War II. It's just been shielded from, from those who live inside the empire. It's been shielded from us within the kind of the safe walls of, of the United States borders. That level of kind of crass destruction, I am arguing, is coming here. There are certain ways in which it's been advancing very slowly. You can ask the folks in Detroit. You can ask the folks in Akron. You can ask the folks who live around my block, right? Around this community did not look gutted and bombed out 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. But nobody, you know, none of these nutworthy folks have an answer on how this is going to change. Not one. And in order for the system to keep perpetuating itself in the way that it is, it's got to eat more and more of the internal flesh and meat, which is right here, right? And who is that going to fall the burden upon? I think one of the, the critical things that, that to me is a good thing that folks are realizing is that
while black and brown folks may get eaten first, they ain't the only people that's going to get eaten. And for folks to kind of wake up to that, I think offers some new political possibilities. But without a serious quest to organize to deal with that challenge, uh, I think we run up short to what's actually coming on. And I think to me, there's a level of which just trying to uh, uh, folk, focus folks' energy towards electoral politics is actually doing a disservice to politics, right? Now, I'm not saying if, if, if somebody in your local context is going to open up more democratic space, fight for them, right? Straight up. I'm not going to tell you not to fight for them. Or not go, go, go fight for them. But recognize that's not the solution to the problem. At best, it's just some tactical short-term relief. That is all that anybody can offer at the, at the present moment. And if you need that, fight for it. But you better build something that's going to deal with the long-term necessity of what, of what we're aiming for. And that needs to be given more priority in your time and energy than the short-term tactical. That is my position. I'll just say that, you know, these are the key questions facing, um, as I framed it in my uh, opening comments, this developing radicalization in this country. What is the attitude towards the Democratic Party? Um, and I think part of understanding that is understanding uh, historically what the attitude of the Democratic Party has been towards uh, people who are interested in issues of social justice, um, radical politics. Uh, and I think that, you know, there's, I, th I think that there's some question as to whether or not uh, there is a revolt happening within the Democratic Party. And, you know, this is where I think history uh, is very critical um, in, in understanding the past. Uh, which is to say that, you know, the, the, the Democratic Party, whether it's in the 1930s or the 1960s, has a long history of co-opting its critics um, on the left and absorbing them um, into uh, its apparatus in such a way that um, may lead people to believe that they are shaping the interest of uh, the party when in fact um, the party uh, is changing. Uh, their objectives from um, the you know the 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 larger questions to uh, what is possible and what is pragmatic um, and the scale of I mean there's a lot to say about this but uh, I think when Kali says that the scale of crisis that uh, confronts us these are things that are not ever on the ballot the the question of climate change is not on the ballot. Did you notice that the, the, the U.S. Congress passed a $717 billion bill for the military, for, the def for defense, there, without a single outcry? There was no opposition to this party. It was two, to, the, to this bill, it was $200 billion more than the military asked for. And so there's, there's no... There's, there's no, this is not, uh, the question of militarism is not on the ballot. If you are opposed to police 
terrorism in the black urban and suburban communities, it's hard to identify who your party is because they begin with the basic premise that we need the police without asking what exactly are the police for. And if we had a just, <laughs> and if we had a just and equitable society, would the police be necessary? And so there, there are, these are the questions that we have to ask and the questions that almost never come up um, in, in elections. And instead, elections are used to constrain our sense of what is possible, what is expected. Uh, and so we end up making choices within this small box instead of uh, thinking beyond uh, those boundaries. So it's not to say that elections are completely inconsequential or don't matter, but we also have to understand the way that uh, the political season is used uh, uh, to contain and to constrain what we think is possible instead of opening things up uh, to deal with the real crises um, that confront our species. And that is not being dramatic. I mean, you know, if you're, if you're a reading person, what we're talking about uh, is, is catastrophic when we talk about uh, the climate, when we talk about the, the games that are happening with nuclear weapons. And uh, this, is, this is serious, and we have to begin to think beyond uh, the questions that are set before us um, in electoral season. So if you do any kind of political work, you oftentimes find yourselves in meetings that go long. And uh, there's this thing that happens that people do, which I really appreciate, where they're like, okay, we're going to do a time check. Just want to do a time check that it's uh, 7.40. We've gone past our time a little bit. But if you don't mind, we'd like to take a little bit more time, both, uh, well, primarily for question and answer, to make sure that you all in the audience have an opportunity to ask questions, not to make comments or give speeches or to plug events, although we appreciate those things but uh, to ask questions. And um, uh, we all, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity to ask these folks some questions and, and hear their thoughts. Um, if there are those in the audience who do have uh, questions, um, we'll do the best to get the microphone to you and um, get to hear what you have to say. So, hands. All right, um, we got one, one hand here and then we'll work from there in the back too and here as well, too. Okay. Hi, thank you, very good event. I have a, a double question, I'll be brief. The first part is, I'd like to hear the panelists uh, describe their evaluation of the political experience of the Obama presidency. And the second part of the question is vis-a-vis -vis electoral politics. Can the panelists imagine uh, building a political party to the left of the Democratic Party. Who was it? Yeah. Um, I guess one of the things I'm really curious about is like the um, where self-love comes into the work for all of you, and like because it seems like you know it's like a lot of reflecting and like doing all those things, and I'm curious like to get a tidbit of what that process looks like. 
in relationship to like doing the like doing the work. Cool. I want to answer your question um, because I think the process of um, transformation and decolonization that we all are like hopefully in the process of undergoing uh, requires that we fall in love with ourselves um, and have to rid ourselves of all the untruths and lies and you know things that we've been told that are untrue about ourselves. And so I oftentimes uh, talk about um, you know, there's a, you know, a, a little thing going around. People are like, you know, self-care, it's important. Self-care, you got to have it. You know, and sometimes I'm like, what do you mean? Go to the spa? What are you talking about? You know, um, but, and I get that we have to take our time and, you know, do what we need to do to stay strong and resilient. But I also think that that um, encompasses self-work and the work that we have to do to, um, yeah, to decolonize, deal with our uh, our traumas and the things that have hurt us and the lies and the, the things that we've gone through just in our lives and do the work of healing that, mending that with our families, having hard conversations. All of those things, I think, um, is what, uh, and what I would say, I'll speak for myself, is what I have been able to, and it's a process, honey, still working on me, um, <laughs> to continue to do in my life, to unearth those hard things you know, and to look in the mirror and be okay with who I am, all of myself, all of my mother hips and mother stretch marks. Like, I'm good, you know what I mean? I'm good, sis is happy where I'm at, you know? Um, and don't deny myself that, um, particularly in service of something else and something, you know, like I can't, uh, can't encourage folk to join a liberatory free movement um, and, not, uh, and not have and not, and not have like uh, accepted it for myself or have applied it to my own life, you know? And I think that's like the basics of hell, just being, a, uh, being in your integrity as a human, you know what I mean? I, so I, yeah, to me it's doing that type of work. Um, and I think as a mom especially, I have to uh, be certainly mindful of the ways in which I not only in my mind know I love myself, but how I express that and my kid can witness me doing that as a little black woman, you know, in training. Let me just say um, really quick about the, the first uh, question. I have a chapter in my Black Lives Matter book called Obama, The End of an Illusion, if that gives some indication uh, of what I think. I think uh, the disappointment in Obama was a catalytic, catalytic uh, factor in the development of the Black Lives Matter. Um, movement. Um, uh, no, I don't think that, uh, uh, I, I just, I, I think that there uh, are tensions within the Democratic Party and I also think that uh, the uh, kind of um, old guard leadership of uh, the party has firm control uh, over its direction. Whether or not that changes I think has to do with the development um, of social movements that exist outside of uh, the party. And things have not developed to the point yet um, where I think that that uh, exists right now. I think part of the reason um, that this is why, you know, the Democrats aren't pursuing a strategy of impeachment. They want Trump to be the candidate in 2020. And so they, you know, everything is about political calculations and they drag their feet 
Um, and so you have these developments that are represented, represented by the, the Sanders wing of the party, um, and yet the, the leadership still treats Sanders uh, like a bad disease that they want to get rid of. Um, and so that is, is a dynamic that I think is firmly entrenched until uh, there's broader social forces beyond that um, that, can, that can disrupt that. Uh, the Obama presidency went as expected. I mean, I think we we all need to come to grips with that. I mean, from my vantage point, I'm glad that it happened because I think it, it eliminated some broad illusions uh, that existed in society. Uh, I still think there's a bunch of work to um, undo that um, because, you know, 45 has made certain aspects of the game under his administration and under his regime uh, seem more palatable. But, but uh, let's be honest, most of the uh, the noted anti-democratic moves that Trump is making were enabled by, by Obama uh, in almost every facet that you can think of. Um, and I think that requires us having a deeper, much more clear uh, and forceful articulation of the system to those who are around us to try to cast away those illusions. Uh, so for me, I'm, I'm, I'm glad it happened because I think it, it tied certain, uh, it threw certain notions that if there was some black man, you know, by virtue of his blackness, he was gonna change the system, which was absolute bullshit. Um, you know, he was on their team from the beginning. He made that clear to anybody who read the book uh, and he was a master at taking hopes and dreams and aspirations and twisting them around with a very slick campaign. But he told you very clearly, it's change that, what was it, change? Change you can believe in. What the hell is that? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but people, you know, anyway, it was something we had to, we gone through it, now how do, what do we learn from it? Um, in regards to the second part of your question, I mean, a large part of what we are struggling through, and I mean really struggling through right now, is very much defined by that question. A uh, key part of what some of us, myself in, included, uh, believe was possible in the Jackson context was actually creating something not just to the left of the Democrats, but far to the left of the Democrats. Uh, that is proving more challenging uh, uh, a notion than just declaring it. Um, so there's a lot that goes into uh, unseating everything that King has talked about, and I can. If the opportunity was there. I'd, you know, go off on all the limitations within the Democratic Party, and all the particular ways in which it it, it has many tricks up its sleeve to contain not only social movements but to contain certain uh, uh, dynamics and to utilize social movements. Uh, in many particular ways. You know, all the money that's being funneled uh, right now into, you know, get out the vote and social mobilization, they may come from foundations, et cetera, but the, the, the background force and the political interests alive with the Democratic Party, which are moving us often against our will into these particular campaigns as service, moving the electorate back towards, you know, uh, the limited set of choices that, that exist in this society, which is automatically going to put you in, into their camp, whether you like it or not. Mm -hmm. So us creating something outside of that, I think is imperative, but it's, it's a long-term struggle. Uh, 
in in regards to um, your question, uh, you know, that's an interesting question, and I'm finding that to be more and more of a generational question, um, and trying to 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 grapple with it a bit. Because for me, honestly, I remember the first time I got asked that maybe was, you know, like 2001 or 2000. I didn't even understand the question, right? And I'm like, you know, uh, my mama taught me that. You know, or my people, I don't understand your, your reference. And I'm still struggling with, with, with it because, you know, at least for me, I don't know how to define myself outside of the relations that created me. So the self part of it is a particular piece which is interesting because there's, there's a way in which that could mean my own individual trip, which I don't really you know, know. I know all the people who contributed to making me me and what I owe you know, them and what that means to, to have to give back and the responsibility of that. Uh, so I, it's hard for me to ask, ask a, a particular question in that way, which is individuated. Um, but I think the way in which I'm understanding it is trying to to make sure and impart both to myself and to a younger generation the translation of anger and revenge into the deep love of people and freedom to a different generation, right? Because um, uh, I know me, I you know, just that part I can speak to. Uh, I'm 46 years of just contained rage and always trying to manage that on a day-to-day -day level so I don't walk around trying to burn this shit down all the, all the time, right? And be like, maybe I can burn it tomorrow, you know what I'm saying? But today, <laughs> today I gotta make sure I'm not in prison, you know, and, and certain bills are paid and you know the, the, my kids got some food to eat, but I'm aiming to burn it down, you know? And, and build something new from the ashes of it. And, and so that, that's a particular piece of how do you translate that in a way which is not a self-destructive or, or a destructive energy, but what that means is, you know, loving all of you enough to want to see something different, right? And respecting that, that's the piece I think is, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how do we translate that. So I want to take uh, two more questions from the back here. Um, Jess, is that all right? Can we do that? Okay, sure. Um, uh, if you could put your hand up one more time. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll point him out. Yeah. Right back there. Yeah, I know that face. Sticky, <laughs> sticky. I'm so glad I'm running. It's so cold in here. <laughs> yeah. Hi, my question uh, stems from uh, something that uh, Mary, hey Mary. Uh, how you doing? How you doing? Um, said about isolation. Um, my question is really, uh, how do you combat gentrification? Uh, Springfield recently just put an MGM Grand Casino in the middle of the city, and I can't find my people anymore. So, I'm like, we're feeling really isolated as organizers, really isolated as like young queer Black folk, because our people are scattered all over the state, moving down south, like, and. I find myself really fighting this feeling like, should I hunker down and fight for the city that I was born and raised in and love, and that my family was there, that like my history, my lineage like brought me here, or should I go somewhere else where there's more black radical queer folk 
doing work. So it's like, uh, if any insight would really help. Hi. Um, well, this is addressed to anyone, but it was like, especially like, I like was thinking about it from what Kianga said, like way earlier about um, like uh, electoral politics and how like, like there's like recently been an upsurge in like, like socialism that's like kind of watered down in mainstream politics. And um, I was just curious, like um, what like any of you would say to like, because um, I know a lot of people like this, like people that um, are like interested in like anti-capitalist efforts, but um, kind of like get swept up in like this electoral stuff that doesn't acknowledge things like imperialism or colonialism or exploitation of like black people. And also by extent of that, like how do you envision us creating um, a society beyond capitalism in the, like, in the United States where we have that legacy? Briefly, briefly. <laughs> You're not joking. Okay, let me try to hurry up. You know, real talk, we grappling with the same thing. I live in Atlanta and folks is getting pushed out like roaches. It's ridiculous and we've seen it from when, for generations. Like this has been happening since Olympics, the, uh, the, the um, Super Bowl is coming. They're like another clean sweep, you know? And I think that's the question that many folks are grappling with. Um, and a lot of us are like, living like, yo, let's get some roommates so we can afford this rise in rent. Like we doing what we need to do to try to stay in the city and to stay in the neighborhoods that we are trying to organize in. Um, I, what I do wonder about and what we grapple with is like, where are people going? And like, who is tracking where the, mig where the migration patterns are going? And is this an opportunity to wave the flag and say, yo, everybody come this way, come this way. Let's build something new, you know? And I'm not exactly sure. And those are hard, like hard questions we're grappling with. So there don't, I don't think there are any solutions, but I will say that I don't think this is the time to, um, to go inside. I don't think this is, you know what I mean, it's visible. And, and as you can be, like always keep finding our people, you know what I mean? Wear like your shirt in the Walmart, like yo, I'm looking for other rowdy, you know what I mean, motherfucker. Find your people. Stand on the corner with the sign and flip it, whatever, by any means necessary, you know? But those, I think, are big questions that we all are grappling with. So hopefully later on, if other folk got solutions, you know, yeah, we, we all are trying to look for them. Let me just say, gentrification is a permanent feature of capitalism. Yes. So you can't get rid of it. Now, it doesn't mean, as with all of these discussions, that there's nothing that we can do. And so, You've had, I think, in many cities, the um, organization of tenant unions, of uh, tenant organizations, of grassroots uh, organizations who try to stop foreclosures. That has also been a feature across the 20th century in the United States uh, of, of attempts to uh, protect and extend the right to exist and the right to be somewhere, or what some have referred to as the right to the city. Um, but I think that that is an important part of the discussion when we talk about the limits that are imposed on what is possible when we only look at things in terms of electoralism. And so when people say that, oh, well, that's irresponsible or that's unrealistic, what's unrealistic is actually thinking that under capitalism, everyone uh, uh, will have 
uh, a safe, sound, and affordable place to live, or that everyone will have a living wage, um, on and on down the list. So the, the thing about uh, uh, organizing, though, is that isolation sort of hastens the process. So the, 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 the thing is to try to connect with other people who have similar ideas, similar outrages, uh, and a similar desire to do something about it. And it doesn't mean that uh, that in and of itself ensures success. Uh, unfortunately, our side loses more uh, than we win because the scale of attack is unrelenting um, and, and, and often overwhelming. But it is the only chance that we have uh, at being able to make things sustainable. Um, and so I think that that's not a, a, a grand solution, um, but I do think that that is part of what people are trying to do now um, in cities all over the country uh, to resist the kind of insatiable uh, 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 desire of developers and banks who are really the ones who are driving the processes uh, of gentrification. Um, the only thing that I would say about the, the second question, because it's a huge question and there's, there's not time to, to answer it, um, but many people, everyone who becomes a political radical starts out with liberal ideas and illusions um, in the system. And anyone who says that they didn't is lying. <laughs> so that means everyone up here, everyone that you know who claims to be radical, a socialist, started out with liberal ideas. And I think it's important to say that because radicals often express disdain uh, for people who have liberal ideas um, and wish for them to go away and for everyone to have the radi their radical uh, conclusions. Um, and so I think that you know we have to understand to some extent it's a process by which people go from having liberal illusions in uh, society as it is to begin to think about how society could be. And if all those people are just summarily dismissed because they haven't come quickly enough to the conclusions that we have, have come to, then we're talking about uh, having you know, social movements with our 10 pure friends you know, <laughs> who've never questioned anything uh, uh, or had questions about anything in society. For everyone else, there has to be a, a certain level of patience and contradictorily urgency. Um, uh, in terms of understanding the scale of the crisis, but also understanding that the way that people politically develop is often not because you had a perfect conversation with them. It's because when people have illusions uh, in the, the, the society, they come up against reality. You know, we're, everyone's told in this country, if you just work hard and play by the rules, that you too can be as successful as you want to be. And it's a lie. And most people encounter that lie very quickly. The hardest working people in the United States are poor people. It is a lot of work, hard work, to be poor in the United States. And so when people come up against this lie, then it, it unleashes many questions about, well, what else have I been lied to about? And so that also is the urgency of having organization, because those questions can be answered all sorts of ways. They can be answered by the Trumps of the world. 
that your life sucks because they're Mexicans in this country or they're Muslims in this country or it's the blacks mm -hmm. or it can be answered by uh, white supremacists mm -hmm. who blame all of us mm -hmm. or it can be answered by radicals mm -hmm. and socialists who connect our day-to-day -day problems to a social system an economic system that is built on our degradation and so you can only answer those questions collectively if you're organized. And so that's the urgency also um, of political uh, organization to meet people, uh, uh, um, to actually be able to meet people where they're at and not dismiss everyone because they haven't come to the same conclusions about society uh, uh, as you have. I, I know time is short. Uh, but on this on this question of um, gentrification, I'll just try to point you to uh, an answer that we are experimenting with uh, uh, in Jackson. Um, and there's a chapter called Build and Fight, which is like the introductory chapter. And so the, the, the piece that we um, have really tried to concentrate on is taking a community that's been divested from and basically abandoned now for I was about four generations and trying to redevelop it from within. Um, now there's certain things that based upon a study and an analysis over some time that we looked at to say that pulling some resources together, we could buy land. We can take some of these old abandoned houses in our community, rehabilitate them and then house our people. Uh, that's available to us in the here and now. But like Kinga mentioned, Capitalism has this dynamics uh, which only makes that possible for a short period of time. And what we are already running up to, so we, you know, we, have a, um, uh, we now have about 60 properties you know, that we own. We have, about, we have five that are, that are currently uh, occupied. We have about five more that will be uh, in a position to be occupied by the end of the year you know, from work that's being done. There's a sister organization which owns about 62 uh, uh, properties in town. They have about 15 houses that they have really rehabilitated, right? Um, but the, the critical thing to understand capital and capital flows. Now, this is a neighborhood, this is West, West Oakland. I mean, excuse me, West, West Jackson. Um, I mentioned West Oakland because I was there and, and learned this strategy from a defeat that happened there that I was a part of. A monumental defeat. So you got to learn from your 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 mistakes. Um, it was in that effort, uh, not knowing the game as well as me and some other comrades should have. We actually enabled certain aspects of gentrification to take place with the black cover, uh, but we had to learn from that experience. Uh, but what's going on now in West Jackson, whereas you know there was no quote unquote development in this community for well over about thirty years. Now you see major speculators coming in town because two little black organizations have started to do some housing and development. And so what we are already beginning to confront is the property values are going up, you know, just because of a little bit of work that we have done. Uh, and because there's now something to invest in, you got major banks and other forces which are coming into town uh, now with their own ideas saying, well, we can develop the super supermarket or we can do X, Y, and Z. Uh, and so there's a race against time even within our model 
because it's not necessarily outside of the dynamic of capitalism itself yet. And so we are trying to figure that out. But the critical piece is, when I say we own these pieces, that's the critical piece I want you to, to you and everybody, to kind of to figure on, because we're not, we're about building community land trusts, which is a collective way of owning and controlling land, not individualizing it, because we know from our experience, or I can say for myself, my experience in, in West Jackson, trying to, in West Oakland doing something similar, we enabled a few black folks to get rich at the expense, or you know, a little paper rich, uh, uh, at the expense of a broader organization and community effort. So all of our efforts, I think, really have to be studied, analyzed, uh, struggled through, and the sad part about it is, I would argue, until we actually defeat and overcome capitalism and create something different, we are talking about creating things that have a generational life to serve a particular purpose, and we need to be clear on what that purpose is.